Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Welcome to The Deal Board, everyone. And today, we're doing something new. We're releasing a new series called Everything You Need to Know About Buying a Business. So, Andy, we've been doing these podcasts for almost two years, just a little over a year and a half now. We've got a lot of content for buyers, right? We have a lot of content. And especially these days, uh, we think it's a buyer's market. We've talked about it on previous podcasts. Uh, We are coming out of the COVID crisis or in the middle of it. uh, And we think the marketplace is set for people to buy businesses and for businesses to buy businesses. We've talked about it over and over again. And people have been asking us, we have 80-something episodes out there. And they're like, where do we find the information? Well, we're going to put it all in one place for you. Right, Jess? Right. So over the course of the next few episodes of this series, there's going to be a part one, part two, part three, probably a part four or five too. But we're going to combine about 10 to 15 different episodes take the best of the best of the interviews that we've done and put it in one place for anyone that's interested in buying a business to reference. And we're going to talk about all kinds of different topics. Yeah, everybody loves a series, right? So we're going to talk about how to grow through acquisition. We're going to talk about the basics of buying a business. We're going to talk about some financing options. I mean, there's a lot to go over and the the result of what's happened post-COVID. Yeah, we're going to talk about the economic conditions, what opportunities lie now. Um, We're going to talk about demographic um, conditions when we're talking about baby boomers. And then we're, we're also going to get deep into the weeds with deals. You know, we're going to talk about not just growth through acquisition, but how to flip a business. Um, What do distressed business sales look like? And, you know, even some information about franchises and then even dive into financing, which is everyone's biggest question. Yeah. And we have some great direct entrepreneurial interviews that you're going to love. I mean, I I would re-listen to these and I was like loving it. I'm like, oh, this is such good information for right now. Yeah. It's funny. And there is going to be some stuff like if you're listening to this in 2020, it's going to be very appropriate current events going on. But even if you've bookmarked this and and let's fast forward to the future and it's 2021 or 2022, there's some great advice here that's not dependent on a certain market condition. Yeah, um, this and there's, is timeless. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally timeless. And we are, we do reference some trends that are going on right now because as we're sitting here today, we're still amidst the COVID crisis, a lot of uncertainty. But fast forward, there's still going to be some great advice, great resources and tactics. Um, but what I'd say is bookmark, if you haven't subscribed already to our podcast, make sure you subscribe and bookmark this series. Um, if you subscribe, it'll automatically download to your phone. So the next few episodes will all be about buying businesses. Yeah, and you can go to the dealboardpodcast.com and you could go to Apple and leave us a nice review. There's a lot of places that you can consume this and bookmark it, put it on your headphones uh, and learn. I mean, there's so much to learn and uh, we're going to give you the information direct right now. 
All right. Well, we'll jump right into it. But if you have any questions, please visit us at thedealboardpodcast.com. Uh, submit your questions. We'll, we can answer them via email or in a future episode. All right. Let's get started. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Today, we've got a great show on books and records. And if you remember in our fourth and fifth episodes, we talked about the valuation of businesses and recasting and how books and records can affect both the value of your business and the likelihood that it would sell. So we've got some great stories from brokers across the country today about how books and records affected their deals. And Andy, I mean, let's give our listeners some insight to what could happen in a deal if there's poor books and records in a business. Well, poor books and records could just, number one, flat out kill the deal. When a buyer is looking and gets into due diligence, and we make buyers make an offer, and we'll talk about making offers in a future podcast, but making offers, they're contingent upon doing due diligence. And as we talked about due diligence, you know, if they find something wrong in the beginning, then everything goes it comes into question or goes out the window as far as, you know, truth. So as soon as they find that one seed of inconsistency, it can grow into killing the deal. And if it doesn't kill the deal, it's going to at least really make them, it could make them renegotiate the deal. So we've seen that. We've seen the deal be renegotiated. And we've seen all kinds of things that the sellers eventually have to do to perhaps make the deal work for them or at least gain their trust back. Right, right. And that's, you know, that's the case too. Sometimes we even see businesses with no books and records, which is even a bigger hurdle to overcome. It can be overcome, but then there's all kinds of risks for both the buyer and seller moving forward in that deal. Yeah. I mean, so we we urge our sellers, urge our sellers that if they don't have good books and records, they need to do one or two things. They need to immediately go back and hire someone to clean up past books and records. And if that's not possible because they played with inventory or they're playing with sales and they're hiding cash, if they're doing all those things, then they need to then, right then, start keeping good books and records. Because, you know, the process of selling a business could take up to a year. And if they have six months of good books and records, that's better than nothing. I really think there's nothing we can emphasize more than this piece for business owners looking to sell. I mean, keeping clean books and records is the number one key to success in a transaction. So I think if our listeners take nothing else away from the podcast, hopefully there's some lessons learned today about how to run their businesses moving forward in preparation of a sale. Yeah, I think there's, you know, three ways to keep good books and records. Number one, uh, you should have a computerized system for your business. Uh, it, you know, it's the year 2018, you know, 18. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, we're, we're into the current century, uh, into 18 years, you should have a computer system, uh, both documenting sales and cost of goods sold and inventory. Number two thing you need to do is you need to have a CPA. I mean, really at this point, everyone should have a good CPA. Uh, a system for keeping good books and records. And, you know, number three, you should just stop hiding cash. I mean, so that's, it's 
it, it it's over. I mean, for the most part, businesses have um, very little cash these days unless they're really driving their customers to give them cash. And that may be an exception in some downtown cities where things are moving very quickly and people are running by and buying things. But uh, these days, everybody should should have decent books of records. And, you know, I have an article called the top 10 things to increase the value of your business. And three of them are keep better books and records. Right, right. So I think we've got some great stories and some great lessons for the listeners today. So let's jump in. Great. Let's do it. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. So welcome back and very happy to introduce Aaron Bean from our West Palm office. And uh, Aaron is a fantastic agent, very successful here in Florida. And we are continuing to talk about books and records, quality affecting a sale and how it affects a sale. And so welcome, Aaron. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your deal and what happened? Hi there. So um, basically, I had a nail salon for sale last year. I'd been in business for nearly 30 years in a very great location, excellent lease, um, very nice seller. And the only issue we had was her books and records were a little bit um, misconceiving. And basically that she wasn't reporting all of her income, as we all know, happens with nail salons and other types of industries. So uh, what we did is we asked her basically what each one of her stylists or her nail technicians were being paid um, because they were all on commission. They were all on splits. And so she saved all of basically every week they get a um, receipt of their commissions. And she would save that and give it to me in an envelope. And we tabulated what she was paying them and backed into the sales number um, from doing so. And it really helped us to be able to prove to the buyer what they were actually uh, reporting in sales and actually doing in sales. And then further, what we did was the buyer obviously insisted in shifting some of that risk back to the seller in the form of an earnout, um, which we, she was actually okay with over the next year of being able to prove and have faith in those numbers. Wow, that's pretty succinct. And uh, it's a great story about, you know, how books and records affect the deal and kind of some ways you solved it. So uh, very creative and, uh, you know, backing into the numbers and then eventually having an earn out to make the buyer feel good. So great. Well, thanks for that story. You're welcome. Hey, Andy, you know what time I think it is? I think it's time to talk about our deal of the week. Deal of the week. All right. So this week, our deal of the week comes to us from San Diego, and I have Stephen Hansen on our line. Stephen, welcome back to the show, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Jessica. Good speaking with you again. Great. So you've got a got a deal of the week. So tell us, you know, about this business that you sold. Uh, you know, what type of business was it? Give us a little background on it. Yeah, this was really uh, a fun deal to work on. Actually, we had an inventor, a husband and wife team. We had uh, he's a physicist, develops a product. He actually creates the space. Uh, there was no product like this. It's an accessory that goes on all types of uh, vehicles that are, that are used in law enforcement, emergency medical, transportation, anything that has a lot of accessories on the vehicle. 
and uh, a unique little product. And uh, he brought it to market. And now it's time for him to retire. And okay, now we have to go find a buyer and sell it. So how did you do that? Where'd the buyer come from? How did you find this person? So it was kind of a fun story. We went through uh, actually a number of interviews with different buyers. And then lo and behold, we finally find that perfect buyer that came out of a similar industry that made a product, but it was used for a different application. But the hyper product was very, very similar. So they, you know, bringing the buyer and the seller together, they hit it off big time. They understood what they were talking about. You know, one of like four other people in the world that really understood this technology. And that just made for a great fit. Wow. It's like finding a needle in a haystack there. You know, that's amazing. The seller, his his product was used in vehicles. And the buyer, his product was used in marine products like, you know, boats, things like that. And together, and uh, it was really quite ex- exciting. Great, great transferable experience. So, I mean, like any deal, I'm sure there was challenges to overcome. What kind of challenges did you hit in this one? So, on this one, we had a one uh, big one was that the the couple selling the product, and especially the the uh, inventor, uh, he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's, and he made that very clear to me right from the get go, and spoke with his wife about it, so that uh, I understood his disease, and where he may be having some memory problems. That triggered a couple of things with me. And one was, you know, we really wanted to make sure this seller was safeguarded. So we uh, found a really good trusted attorney and brought him in said, okay, uh, Mr. Attorney, you're going to kind of oversee basically everything the seller is doing to make sure that he understands what he's doing and we protect him and he doesn't sign something then he regrets later on. Okay, so we often talk about how important it is to have good books and records, especially when you're recasting your financials or providing ad backs to increase the seller's discretionary earnings. And today we have with us Ross Hames from our Denver office, who has a great story of how when an owner keeps good books and records with great backup, how it can impact a deal and ultimately get more money for the seller and a better deal done. So Ross, why don't you give us a little introduction about this deal and the seller and how they kept their books and records? Okay, Jessica, this was a business that specialized in repairing pavement in parking lots, uh, private roads, uh, homeowner associations, and so on. And it had grown very quickly, but the owner knew what he was doing to build a business. So he kept good records and as he went out and acquired trucks and equipment, he spent a lot of money to upgrade them to make them work more efficiently, but he kept all the receipts. So when we did a recast, we added back as one-time expenses the money he spent to upgrade his acquired used equipment to make it good as new. Uh, Then we got working with a potential buyer who came from a financial background, and he questioned every dollar worth of recast. And that was pivotal because we're looking at a maybe four times multiple on this deal. So we wanted to get the value up as high as possible. And every dollar we could add to the discretionary income was worth $4 or more in the deal. So it was really a, a big leverage on this uh, recast. So Ross, when you added up um, all those additional or one-time expenses that you ended up adding back to the recast, how much, you know, how much financial impact do you think you had to that deal? Was it an extra $400,000 in the owner's pockets or how significant was it? 
the swing was probably worth about a half a million dollars. So that's nothing to sneeze at. No, it's not. It's not. So let's talk a little bit about what would have happened if the owner didn't keep all those receipts. What do you, what do you think would have happened in that diligence process with the buyer? Well, basically the buyer would have said, you know, I'm not accepting this write-off just because you pulled a number out of the air and said, you know, you spent $150,000 on upgrading your equipment. But my owner had the receipts. He had the track record of what he'd spent so he could support every dollar we put back in as a one-time expense. So then maybe the deal wouldn't have gone through with the buyer. Maybe you would have changed the purchase price. Ultimately, we said it was a half million dollar swing. That's that's not insignificant. Like you said, nothing to sneeze at, right? right? So looking into the future, you've been doing this for a number of years, Ross. What advice would you have to sellers that have significant one-time expenses or significant addbacks in a deal? What advice would you have to them um, in preparing to sell? Well, you absolutely need to keep things keep a record of every dollar you spent, especially those that are unusual, extraordinary one-time expenses, because those are the things that we can legitimately write off and add back to the seller's discretionary earnings. But you, if you don't have support for that, most buyers are going to disregard them and write down the level of discretionary earnings for the deal and therefore the value of your sale. Great. I think that was a great example of keeping good books and records and how it can really increase the value of your company. So thanks for your time, Rosh, and thanks for sharing. Thank you, Jessica. So today we're talking about books and records and how they can affect the purchase price of a business or even the fact of a business is going to sell. And we have Linnea Westlake from our San Diego office today to share a story with us of some challenges related to books and records, but challenges that were ultimately overcome and a deal was able to get done. So Linnea, say hi and tell us a little bit about this business you had listed for sale. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks for having me back again. I, uh, I wanted to share with you a story about a, a really good little business that um, that had some challenges with the books and records uh, and it, and it did ultimately impact the sale price a little. Um, so this is a, this was a dog grooming business, long established, profitable, um, very well respected. And, um, you know, it was on the market for mm, two fifty, and, uh, it, and that was a fair price given the SDE, both uh, for 2016 and 2017. Um, the, the books and records, um, I applaud the seller in that, you know, P&Ls existed. Um, but by her own admission, she's a groomer and was hiring, um, you know, part-time help to do the QuickBooks. And uh, ultimately, there wasn't... Um, a lot of consistency from year to year in terms of the categories. And there were an awful lot of addbacks and there were some duplicate categories. For example, there were three categories of supplies. So from my perspective, one of the, the initial challenges was I really had to get to the bottom of what that all was um, so that I could explain the situation to a buyer. Um, and that was quite a time consuming process, maybe slowed down the sale potentially, but ultimately, she did get a really great buyer, but during the due diligence process, though all of the data was available and the seller was very um, responsive and open, uh, 
the buyer got confused in terms of, you know, what was really there. Ultimately, I had to, or I didn't have to, but I, I built a Proforma P&L um, allowing the buyer to plug in her own numbers related to the different categories of income, as well as the different categories of both fixed and variable expenses, and let her you know, fool around with that um, so that she could get a feel for, even if she didn't understand you know, the adjusted P&Ls that we got from the seller, she could understand how she was going to build her budget and her business going forward. And ultimately, that got her over the hump. But it did cost the seller ultimately, you know, about 15% in sell price. Right. And I mean, that's, we talked about this actually in our, our recasting podcast, but how important it is those that consistency year to year is how you're categorizing expenses. And then, you know, not, not to get too crazy or confusing with the ad backs, because I, I think in this situation too, it just causes confusion for the buyer and also puts a little bit of doubt in their minds. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that there was a lot of trust on both sides here, but nonetheless, it, you know, it took quite a bit of work on everybody's part to get over the hump and get her comfortable, get the buyer comfortable with, you know, what really was in those numbers. Right. So ultimately the seller took, you said about what, a 15% haircut on the, the sale price, which actually is not too bad, right? Not too bad for messy. The, the, the good news is, is it was legit and the tax returns back, you know, everything backed up correctly. It was that it was just messy and it, and it caused some confusion and uh, perhaps a little bit of doubt. I mean, it, it, it gave the buyer some leverage. Do you think if the seller had gone back and done some cleanup on those QuickBooks and did some consistency on the categories of expenses, do you think they could have gotten a higher selling price for this business? I think if we had done that in the very beginning, that they would have gotten closer to the asking price. So there's some money left on the table. Yes, absolutely. It's a good lesson to learn that, you know, clean books and records don't just mean having books and records, but ultimately having consistent books and records that are clear and understandable to a buyer. Hey, Andy, do you know what time it is? It's time for our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Sold. Hey, everybody, we're back and it is deal of the week. And I have a very special guest, Ray Coppell, my partner. We've been together for over 20 years and he has recently sold an insurance business, and that is a niche of a business out there, has its own valuation multiples. And Ray, why don't you tell us a little bit about this deal? Okay. Uh, this deal started some years ago and then went off market, came back on market when the seller got motivated and real. And uh, as you'll find, if you do market an insurance agency itself or a book of business, meaning uh, the policies that are held by the agency, you'll get a lot, a lot of inquiries. So mostly they're almost all from other people that are in the industry currently, I mean, they're agents, uh, they own agencies, the brokers that own the agency or people working at an agency want to go out on their own and things like that. And they're pretty familiar with the field more, more so than you are. And they'll have different ideas about valuation, but they tend to sell well. This one in particular sold for three times the book value, mm. meaning three times or just slightly over three times, actually, that how much are the policies generate in gross revenue for the agency? Right. So imagine three times gross. Yes. That's a lot. That's what they sell for. Yeah, That's they, a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good one. And this was a good book sold and actually sold to somebody who actually was appointed, meaning they had the right to sell the policies for that insurance company. And somebody else who had the same appointment sold it to the other guy. I was a guy in the middle that connected the two and everything worked well. And we got outside financing for that. You can often get outside financing for that by going to the companies that specialize that, uh, specialize in that, not SBA financing. You can do SBA financing if the track, you know, the tax returns and all the stars line up. But a real specialist in that end of of a business is Oak Street Funding and some competitors. So it's financeable with a lower amount down than you can find through SBA financing. But the things have to line up. The buyer, they really, really focus on the buyer. Can they support acquiring this book? They're very flexible in financing arrangements and deals get done. Yeah. So and it's a good business to be involved with. Yeah. And you would think that, you know, not using a broker would be easy because you could find the buyer. But the, the crush of buyers itself and getting the, the right party to buy it at the right price uh, that will take up a huge amount of time for a seller. So that's why you want to use someone like Ray. This is very true, Andy. Absolutely. It's disorienting for an owner. They really don't know who to deal with, how to get things done. They, they get distracted and they don't run their business and that really hurts value. So yes, the broker is essential in making this all work, getting all the parties of coordinated information, Flushing through who's real, who's not, who's active, who's serious, who responds, who's aggressive, who's getting it done. That's the broker. That's yeah, up. That's, a, that's a great deal. Ray, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Two ways. You can just uh, email me, ray at tworld.com, or call me, 954-464-6290, cell phone. Another good deal. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate it. Love you, Andy. He's amazing, amazing. Bye. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from listeners that you love our financing episodes. So today we're really going to take a deep dive into this topic. Yeah, I think it's an essential part. I mean, so many businesses uh, rely upon seller financing to sell. I don't know many businesses that don't. I mean, we could talk about some of the statistics, but it's it's an infinitesimal intestinal small amount of businesses that sell without it. Yeah. It's like, it's finding the needle in the haystack, right? So, you know, we were just talking Andy and, and almost every deal requires seller financing in some form. And in the small deals, you have to have a bigger component of seller financing because you're not getting bank loans. Even the bank loans now, typically the banks are going to ask the seller to carry a 10% note as well. So even if, if you have an SBA transaction, you're still going to have seller financing on that deal as well. Yeah. I mean, the banks want to see the seller in invested and interested in the buyer's success. The buyer wants to see the uh, success, uh, you know, the, the seller interested in their success and believing in their own business and believing in the deal. I mean, and, you know, as brokers, we want to see the sellers uh, invested in the deal and willing to give a buyer a shot. You know, again, we're trying to do good deals for good people. So part of that is the seller believing in the business so much that they're willing to finance the buyer. and. We see such a low default rate 
Yeah, I mean, there there's really very few defaults. And, and I know we have a great interview um, with Deborah coming up after this intro that talks about, you know, how you can mitigate some of those risks and what those numbers look like. But it, it's really small. And, and honestly, if a buyer does decide that they're not going to pay off the loan, usually what they end up doing is coming back to the broker and have the broker reselling the business. That ha- happens to us all the time. But I think a, an important point you make is, you know, a lot of sellers will ask me, well, why am I going to finance this business for the buyer? They should have the money themselves or go find the money themselves. It's not about the money. It's about the seller believing that business and having a reason to pick up the phone when the buyer calls, you know, two months after sale and they have a transition question or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the buyers want to feel good that the seller's invested again and the buyers have choices, right? So a lot of people are you know, have seller financing in their offering uh, when we're selling their business. So the buyers have choices. So if somebody had $100,000 to buy a business, they could do three things. They could buy a business for $100,000, which probably makes about $50,000 a year, maybe two-time multiple. We talked about that during our- Right, two times. Right. So we talked about that evaluation. So the second thing they could do is maybe buy a business that has seller financing and seller financing. We'll talk about it in a second. uh, Typical terms are 50%. So they could buy a $200,000 business and that business makes, let's say, $100,000 a year. And then they may be able to go out to get a seller, uh, a, a seller that has SBA financing in the deal and a deal. And so that's about 20% down or even less, but let's just go right. with 20% down for simplicity. And they could buy a $500,000 deal with that same $100,000. So every buyer, and you could even ratchet that up to the private equity family offices, everybody wants to leverage their money. And right. so the cash deals we see, and we do see some cash deals, um, are often the small kind of liquidation sales, uh, the hair salon, restaurant equipment, something where the uh, you know the buyer is not going to be liable for something, or the buyer is not going to be um, uh, need information, right? Right. There's going to be less risk, you know. Like we've done straight inventory deals, things like that. But there, there's less risk, and and also honestly, the the price is a lot lower, and the potential for the buyer, the upside potential is a lot higher. So there's that risk reward ratio. But you know, I, I love that that example you use, Andy. And you know, buyers are savvy, and, and they really are looking for the best ROI they can get in that business. And if they can put a hundred thousand dollars down buy a $500,000 business and then their owner benefit their first year owning that business is, you know, 200, $250,000. That's a pretty good deal. So seller financing opens the doors for a lot more buyers. So I guess before we talk about some of the benefits, Andy, why don't we jump in and explain exactly what seller financing is? Sure. So seller financing is a loan and it's a loan made by the seller and the seller is acting as the bank. And we, we could talk about the Typical terms, right? What are what are you seeing out there, Jessica? I mean, typical terms is it's it's very similar to a bank loan, right? So you're going to see three to five year repayment uh, 
repayment period. Um, and interest rates, also similar to bank loans. I mean, right now we're seeing somewhere between 5 to 7%. If interest rates continue to tick up, there might those might go higher. But there, it's a very similar term to what a buyer would get at a bank. Yeah, and obviously the seller wants the buyer to succeed. So the term and the interest is going to have to be commensurate with the payment that's going to be commensurate with the cash flow. So the buyer can actually earn a living, get a return on his equity, and be able to pay off the bank, which is the seller. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen sellers say, oh, well, I want I want the buyer to repay me in a year. And then when you, you do the cash flow analysis, so there's no funds on a monthly basis to make that heavy of a payment. And the last thing you want to do with seller financing is, is put the buyer in a position where they can't make their payments to you as the seller. So you really have to work those terms and make sure it works, not just for the seller, but for the buyer and for the business. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the other nice things about uh, seller financing is it is somewhat flexible, right? So we just went through the economic downturn, uh, started about late 2009, 2010, 2011. Sure, a lot of people that bought their businesses at the height with seller financing got in a little bit of trouble. And guess what the sellers did? The sellers were able to take interest only. They were able to push off uh, interest in principal payments during uh, off-season. Uh, we have seasons down here in Florida where uh, restaurants are busy, restaurants aren't busy. So so it's, it's somewhat flexible as compared to a bank uh, that might be inflexible. So there's a lot of benefits to, you know, especially small businesses. Talking about seller financing from a buyer perspective, you know, what are some things, Andy, that you would recommend to buyers when you're when they're looking at using seller financing as a tool to purchase a business? Well, uh, Jess, I've bought several businesses in my life, and that one being Transworld, and I definitely had seller notes involved because I wanted to make sure that the sellers were going to be engaged. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, in the note, we one of the provisions is usually there's a right of offset. So if there's anything that comes up and the in the you know, seller refuses to pay for a bill or for a, for back rent or taxes or anything, uh, the buyer can notify the seller uh, within a certain time period. If the seller doesn't cure it and it's legitimate, then the buyer gets to reduce their note. So it's a great tool to make sure that anything that was left behind by the seller gets cleaned up. And, uh, you know, and secondly, it's leveraging your money. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Yeah, leveraging money. And and I've done the same thing purchasing businesses too. And I, I think it's really important as a buyer to use seller financing to your advantage. You know, make sure that you're going to include at least a portion of it in every deal, even if you're using an SBA loan. So you have those things like right of set off and extra support from the seller. Um, and then also, you know, take, taking a look at the financials of the business and making sure you know your loan payments match up to the cash flow of the business and you're able to pay your expenses for the business, pay the loan payments, but also take home what you personally need to live at the end of the day from the profit of the business on a monthly basis. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's so important for the buyer to be able to survive, live. Uh, and so paying 100% cash for a business is just unlikely, unreasonable. It's not good deals for good people. And, you know, I was in a meeting with a seller the other day and he point, you know, he's he was immediately kind of taking a stance of how this deal was going to go. And uh, he pointed to me, you know, he said, I'll guarantee you one thing, Andy, 
He said, I guarantee you, I will never take seller financing. And I just looked at him <laughs> and I said, well, I'll guarantee you one thing. It's highly unlikely we'll ever sell this business for you or you'll ever sell it to anybody. Exactly. Exactly. And every, like, I, I can't stress, like, it is so rare that we have a deal that doesn't include seller financing. And like we said, some of the really, really small deals, but, you know, small deals have seller financing, medium deals have seller financing, big deals have a type of seller financing. They're just called something different. They're called earnouts or holdbacks or whatever, but it's still seller financing at the end of the day. And we get it. I know it's scary to finance a portion of the sale price to a buyer that you've only known a few months. But it's just how, like you said, Andy, good deals get done. We have a very special guest. They're all special, but this one is super special. We have Deborah Carmen from Carmen Law in Boca Raton. And Deborah has been a partner here at Transworld for well over a decade, probably for as long as I've been here at Transworld, which is 20 years. And Deborah has literally done thousands of deals, been in the been an attorney for 35 years, uh, knows small business in and out. And we wanted to bring her on today to specifically speak again to uh, talk about seller financing uh, from an attorney's perspective and getting a deal done's perspective. And, you know, also addressing, you know, the big fears of sellers, like how do we protect the sellers and really why buyers want to have seller financing too. But you know, Deborah, we were we were talking a little bit just before this interview, and I asked you the question: How many deals? You know, thousands and thousands of deals. You you even speculated maybe ten thousand deals. Uh, how many deals didn't have seller financing? So I'll let you answer that, and maybe just kind of jump into the subject. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be on today. Uh, I'd say about twenty to thirty percent of the deals we do are cash. And, uh, you know, we don't see very many vanilla deals. So even when I say that they're, they're involving cash, they're still not vanilla deals. But for the majority of the time, we're going to see people take seller financing, and that's because seller wants to get their price. And it makes everyone have a real feel of comfort. A buyer is much more comfortable when he has seller financing because he feels in a, in a way that he's a partner with the seller. And that makes the seller stay on track. And I can tell you that in 35 years of experience, the most successful business owners I see are the ones that have the seller helping them. Because if you don't have that seller help and you feel that you can change the concept of what you bought, then automatically you're coming in with an issue. Uh, my feelings are as an attorney for 35 years that when you see people coming and buying a business, they're buying something that works. And I see immediately when they go to change that, that becomes the issue. When there's seller financing, seller has a little more input, a little bit more uh, say over how they're going to run the business. So they feel more comfortable running the business and that makes them succeed. That's great. And, you know, and when we go to list the business, a lot of times the sellers will look at us and say, I want a hundred percent cash. And as you pointed out, and as we've talked about, uh, as we'll talk about during this podcast, it's probably almost a 25, 30% discount if you were able to get cash. So, and that's if, I mean, seller financing gets deals done, correct? Seller financing gets deals done and we can be as creative as the seller wants us to be. We can be creative with the collateral that they take. We can be creative with a buyer if there's an earnout. There's so many different ways to do a deal. And over 35 years, I learned something new probably every day on how we can structure a deal. I have a deal right now that we're working on where they don't want to take the assets of the business. They want to take real property. 
and the buyer happens to have a condo worth the amount of the loan, and we're going to go ahead and structure it so it becomes a situation where if they don't pay on the con, they don't pay on the loan, the condo then becomes, of course, uh, after foreclosure, the sellers. So there are a lot of different ways to collateralize a loan. Sometimes people collateralize it with stock pledges if it's a stock sale. So it really depends upon the situation. But seller financing allows us the creativity that we need. So you brought up some unusual situations, and it's unusual for people to pledge uh, real estate to back a loan, uh, seller financing, but that can certainly be something that's done creatively. But let's talk about what's usually included in a seller note and how the seller is protected. Let's talk about the usual way, which is to take a promissory note, personally guaranteed by the buyers individually, uh, and the buyer's spouse if the buyer is married. And also what we do is we take a UCC, which is a Uniform Commercial Code Financing, which says really to the world, this is a lien on this business. Until this business is, uh, until this is paid off, you cannot sell this business free and clear. And that's pretty important. We file that over the state of Florida. We also do a chattel mortgage, much like you have a mortgage for your house, you have a chattel mortgage, which is a mortgage on the assets of the business. So in that sense, you have those two protections, plus you have the personal guarantee. And for the majority of the point, people do not want to have their credit ruined when they buy a business. They're putting down a substantial amount of money, and they don't want to be in a situation where they fail, and then, of course, they have to declare bankruptcy. Yeah, and and so... We don't see a lot of that. I, you know, I always tell sellers, I was like, we, you know, I've been doing this for 20 something years now. We've done tens of thousands of deals. We just don't see a lot of defaults. And, you know, maybe I'm not on that side of the game. I mean, we obviously have sell buyers, uh, buyers who eventually come back to us to resell their business. But for the most part, you know, these buyers are putting down at least around 50%, and sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, uh, when there's seller note involved. You know, uh, SBA is a whole different uh, ballgame. You can listen to those uh, podcasts and hear about what the structure is in SBA. But for seller financing, it's usually 50%. So we just don't see a lot of defaults, do we? No, we don't see a lot of defaults. And if you're in a situation as a seller and you're having a problem with a buyer, communication is the best way to resolve it. I'll talk to a seller who's had a problem for two years with a buyer, hasn't done anything about it, and all of a sudden wants to do something. The way to do it is to keep track on what's going on with that buyer. And if you find you have a problem, sit down and potentially we can restructure the deal. So that's what really happens is participants, you can't be a participant and walk away. Because once you walk away as a seller and you don't know what anyone is doing, you move, uh, let's say, to, uh, to another country, but you never ask what's going on, never, never call the buyer or try to assist the buyer, that's a problem. What we found, too, is that many times buyers have questions, the seller's gone. And that's another issue. How much is the seller willing to continue to assist that buyer to get that note paid? And that's why I said in the beginning, it's almost like a partnership in a way, because if you have a seller that is cooperating, you know, Andy, with the buyer, that rate of success is going to be much better because then that buyer says, this client did this over here. and What can I do to win him over? What can we do over here? That seller is going to have an answer and step in because that seller also, not only are they going to be a, a good person about it, but they want to be paid on their note. So it's really a two-way street when you have seller financing. And I found people who are very successful in getting every single dollar on their note are people who are involved later on with that deal. Not 
bother him or constantly being with them, but being there if they need anything. And that's why we put down telephonic consultations. We put down that they can call the seller if there's an issue because we want that avenue of communication to be left open because we want people to be successful. Wow, that's a great summary. And you outlined some points why it's very important for buyers too. that communication, that ability to talk to the seller. Uh, when, when a buyer runs into an issue with a vendor or, or a big customer, that that seller has the motivation to jump back in. So listen, we do good deals for good people. That's what it's all about. No, 100%, Andy. And I've noticed too, let's say a restaurant deal, and let's say it's summertime and you're having a really slow month and you can't pay the seller, call them on the phone. You know, start a dialogue and get things worked out. And that's when, when people, you know, are successful in getting their note paid, they will work this out with the buyer. Uh, it might be one month that they wait for and then they get that tacked on at the end. There's all different kinds of ways. Most of the time that doesn't become an issue. And I think it really is to some extent industry driven, uh, it, whether or not we know that at some point in time there could be a slump for that year. And, and we could also do something in regards of just uh, how we do the payments. Sometimes their principal um, payments are made during the year as well as payments of principal and interest. Sometimes it's just going to be interest only with a balloon. So we can look at the industry look over here what you constantly see. And if you know December is a great month, you might want to get paid more in December. You know something that that the summer is a tough month, you might want to do something to help your buyer. So all different ways we can structure this for you. So we make sure that the seller has as much opportunity as they can to get every dollar. Thank you, Deborah. You are an amazing resource. So to wrap this up, how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about uh, doing deals or, uh, you know, helping maybe hiring you as their attorney when they're uh, buying or selling. Uh, People can give us a call, Andy. Thank you. And uh, our number is 561-392-7031. You can look us up on the web or you can do info at uh, carmenlegal.com. So it's info at carmenlegal.com. And thank you so much for having me here today. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for listing of the week. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And it is listing of the week. And we have Chip Redman from Transworld Business Advisors of Central Florida. Welcome, Chip. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Good. And, you know, listen, we always talk about uh, like big deals out there in the world. But, you know, we want to remind people, especially with the unemployment, you know, creeping up, that there are some really good small businesses that you could have an excellent career with. So tell me about yours. This is a barber shop, right? Yeah, I've got a seven chair barber barber shop in Osceola County. It's kind of near the theme parks. It's a really neat deal to where the guy has seven chairs that he rents out at $200 a week for barbers. And he actually has two chairs in a back area that's set up for tattooing. Wow. And the owner wants to retire, right? The owner wants to move into another industry. Okay. Um, he doesn't want to cut hair anymore. He'd like to move into flipping houses is his next dream. Okay. So he, he had a small little business and this one is being sold cheap, right? You got to move. Yeah. He's moving this for $20,000. He earned 34000 last year in earnings, um, and he's trying to get rid of it right now at $20,000 even. Right. So somebody who cut hair, who is a barber, this is an excellent deal for them, right? Yeah, it's great. All you would need is somebody to have a master barber's license, but he's willing to leave his master barber license there at the shop, cut hair, and, and live your dream. 
There you go. So for $20,000, you're in business and uh, you can uh, start, you know, working. And uh, with, they are operating now, right? They are open, fully open right now. They're just wearing masks. There you go. Good citizens wearing masks and doing business. That's what we like to say. Uh, Chip, what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody wants to know more? My cell phone is 321-299-6867. And you can get me at chrisredmond at tworld.com. There you go. Great job, Chris. And give him a call. This is a great deal. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you having me on. Legal is a big component when you're doing these transactions and having the right legal partner is crucial. We've talked about it a lot. And today we have two great legal partners on the podcast to talk about their expertise and what to expect in a deal. A legal partner is essential in a deal. A a lot of times when we're doing deals, uh, we talk about the deal killers and what kills a deal. And the wrong attorney could absolutely at least delay a deal or and cost you a lot of money because they don't exactly know what they're doing or they need to learn what they're doing on your dime, uh, but they could actually kill the deal. And they could be asking for unreasonable things in a deal uh, that don't belong there uh, just because of their inexperience or they're over, you know, listen, attorneys are not risk takers, right? So they're going to do everything they can to not have their client take risk, which is part of their job, but there's a balance there, right? Right. And and what we've talked about too is there's specialists. So just like doctors, there's specialists in law. And in this segment of law, there's transactional attorneys. And all they do for a living is help people in buy-sell transactions. So they know which of those risks are normal, which are abnormal, and can kind of guide you through the process. Uh, We have two experts on the show today. I interviewed Jonathan Langer with his Bicky & Associates out in Colorado. Um, They do all about 100 deals a year um, in the small to mid-sized business um, transaction size, which is great because we talk about a lot too is when you're selecting the right attorney, if you can select somebody who has experience, think about all the risks and issues they've already navigated and all the kind of issues that they can solve for your deal. And then Andy, you have a great interview too. I do. I have Deborah Carmen of Carmen Law and she has been with us for ooh, probably 20 years. She probably doesn't want to talk about it, about how long she's been doing deals uh, with us. And she is great. I mean, just talk about the nuts and bolts of buying a business. And one of my biggest points to buyers and sellers who say, oh, do I really need an attorney to sell your business? On the sell side, you want an attorney to make sure that everything that you signed up for as a, as a owner of a business is now the buyer's problem. You know, they're absolutely, you're transferring those assets properly to the buyer. And then on the buy side, you want to make sure that you have properly transferred those 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 assets to you uh, legally. Right. And there's some representations and warranties that you're going to want included on both sides to make it clear that the buyer understands what was presented to them during the conversations about the deal and the seller understands what they've presented to the buyer. It, it It is one of those things where people will ask me, you know, can I do a deal without an attorney? And I say, you can, you can. 
do a deal without an attorney. It's not something I'd recommend. I'd actually, it's probably my number one deal team member that you have to have even above a broker. Um, it's just, there's a lot of moving pieces in a deal. And even like you said, Andy, transferring assets properly. If there's a seller note filing proper liens against the company um, for the seller to give them a little bit of protection, it, it's not as easy as just drawing up a sale contract. Yeah, or the landlord, making sure that you properly transfer the lease and most sellers are going to have to stay on the lease and you're going to want to have a hold harmless against that. And you're going to want to have a collateral assignment of the lease if you're the seller. So if the buyer doesn't pay the note that you have those th that you get the lease uh, because the landlord could just take it from you. I mean, there's things that you want in a deal that you don't even think about uh, that you want to make sure that you have the proper legal structure. And then you just talk about the buyer having the right structure in a corporation, S corp, LLC, all those kind of things. The, the, the CPA might give you some advice uh, there as well, but just making sure you have the proper structure going into a deal. So we're not attorneys at all, <laughs> but we work with a lot of attorneys. We have two of the best that we work with that are providing some great advice today. Um, and also like, I think that this is something to hiring an attorney for your deal is not a giant expense, especially when you look at the potential repercussions. So if you're in the middle of a deal, you're considering buying or selling, being properly represented, selecting attorney that has deal experience for the certain size companies that you're about to sell or buy is crucial. Um, but Deborah and Jonathan both provide some great insight. We'll also have their contact information in the show notes if you have further questions for them today. Welcome back, everybody. And today, as you know, we're talking about what you should legally know about selling your business. And we've already dove into the sell side a little bit. So now we're going to talk about if you're buying a business, what are some legal things that you need to know or legal opportunities you have? Um, and I have a great partner of ours, Jonathan Langer. He is a partner at Isbicki and Associates in Colorado. They do a ton of deals with us. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Well, so first off, Jonathan, let's talk about like what kind of legal issues should buyers be prepared for when they're buying a business? Yeah, um, there's a few different categories of, of issues that buyers should be aware of. Um, and really, it's it's what their what their own structure looks like, um, issues with what they're stepping into with the seller, and then um, just the definitive documents for the transaction. So, you know, first, a buyer needs to make sure that they have their their own structuring house in order. And um, you're almost always going to be wanting to buy a business inside of a, a newly formed company. Um, it, typically, it's going to be a limited liability company. Um, you know, occasionally, people will use the corporate form. Um, and then, of course, there's the separate issue of, of taxation, um, which you can choose corporate or, or pass-through taxation inside of LLCs. Um, and then inside of your own entity structuring, is it are, is it just a single individual who's going to own it? Or is it a few people who are all working together? Are there passive investors? Um, and really the way you set up your structure will um, you know, be based a lot on, on some of those initial questions. Um, and then there's the further question of, is this a one-time purchase or um, is the buyer um, setting up a more complicated structure with a holding company and different branches underneath it. So um, that's one of the key areas. Um, a second one is the is the seller structure, and you know typically in 
in most deals, you're going to be buying just the assets of a business. So you're forming the buyers forming a new entity and uh, bringing the seller's assets over. So in that case, you know, whether the seller is a corporation or a LLC and who owns it really doesn't matter as much. Um, occasionally, I'll reason that you're taking over the company itself, in which case you need to do a much deeper dive into that area. Um, but another structure that you're stepping into with a seller is just how they've conducted their business. Um, do they have a lot of contracts? Are there are there customer contracts? Are there supplier contracts? Um, are those easy to step into? Are they hard to step into? Um, so just the, the the scope of the of the seller's legal arrangements um, with all the various parties they work with are going to matter. Uh, and then the third area um, and probably the, the, the one that, that I spend my most time on when I'm working with buyers is the definitive documents for the deal. Um, and there's, uh, you're always going to have your, your primary purchase agreement. You're probably going to have a non-competition agreement. Um, and just, you know, what do those documents look like? What's in them? How robust do they need to be? What issues is a seller worried about? Um, how do you allocate risk in between, between the buyer and the seller? Um, so there's there's a lot of details that you can really that you really need to dive into in your definitive documents. Um, and of course, when I'm talking to buyer clients, I one of my initial questions is, what are the key parts of the business? What are you really worried about? And what are the things that you think that we need to cover? Because I I know generally what these documents should cover, but every time I always want to make sure that I'm um, getting you know that I'm that I'm working on the issues that the buyer cares about and covering the stuff that that matters most to them. Right, and we'll we'll dive into into risk a little bit too and how to mitigate that. But I think a good point you bring up too is that, you know, there's multiple legal aspects in buying a business. And, and even when you're talking about documents, like documents, not document, like I think a lot of buyers go in and they think, oh, there's just the one purchase document. But depending on the deal and the structure, like you have to move different assets over. If there's a seller note, those are additional documents. So there's a lot more that goes into the actual legal documents drafting than just like one purchase agreement, Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, the the initial document in most transactions is a letter of intent, and that's where you're just figuring out the the, the bones of the deal. Um, is there a fundamental agreement on on, on this transaction? And then um, the parties take that and draft a much more robust purchase agreement, where you try to figure out you know, all of the various issues in the transaction. And that the the asset purchase agreement is by far the biggest document in the transaction and the the, the most important. Um, but there are a number of other ancillary documents as well, as you mentioned. Um, a lot of transactions, especially where there's SBA financing, have um, a, a seller carry note that's part of it. And then there's the question of what sort of security do you have for that? Is there a personal guarantee, which can be a separate document? Is there a security agreement in the assets that have been transferred over? Uh, so there, th that's often part of the document set. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned, that you might have customer supplier contracts, so you'll need um, if it, depending on the complexity of assignment of those that you'll need an assignment document with them or an assignment and assumption agreement. Um, of course, you're probably also stepping into a seller's lease. And so, you know, there's, there's reviewing that whole lease agreement that the seller has or possibly negotiating a new one. And then, um, you know, other documents with the landlord as well. So, um, you know, even on a fairly simple transaction, there, there is a document set. Um, and then as, as transactions get more complicated, just the, the length and scope and breadth of all those documents and really the number of different documents you have can also increase. 
Right. I mean, and it's a complicated process. Like you're memorializing an entire business in a single transaction. So there's a lot to take into account when you're doing the legal transfer. Let's talk about some of the risks and how buyers can best protect themselves from a legal standpoint. So what are, what are some of the biggest risks you've seen in buying a business and how have you been able to protect that um, through legal documents or through the asset purchase agreement for the buyer side? The, the buying a business can be risky, although obviously everybody wants to do everything they can to, to minimize that. Um, and so, you know, as, as, as an attorney, obviously, I'm spending a lot of my time in the legal documents themselves, and, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I think the number one way that a buyer can protect themselves from risk in a transaction is doing a deal with a seller who they trust. Um, so I think that there's just some front end items of just of making sure that you, um, that, that you, that you've met with the seller, that you believe they're doing a good job, that you trust that they've done the right thing. Because, um, you know, if stepping into a business that has issues is a whole lot worse than buying a totally clean business. And so, and there's a lot that you can do just by, you know, as, as a buyer using your experience and what you know, in order to just initially vet the business and make sure that you're doing a deal with someone who you believe in. Um, and related to that too, is a lot of upfront due diligence that a buyer wants to make sure that they've reviewed the financials and that they know what they say and that they have a general understanding of the business and that they know who the employees are and that somebody's not a major flight or competition risk. And so um, the more a buyer understands about a business, um, as you're going forward with the transaction, the more you can identify potential risks and protect yourself from them. Um, and so it, I think in, in terms of risks that I've seen on transactions, um, we do a lot of deals in our law firm. Um, we've averaged closing over 100 deals a year for the past few years. And the number of times that there's any issues post-closing is exceedingly small. So um, 99 times out of 100, these just work and they're fine. Again, because probably the buyer has done, you know, trust the seller, the seller's a good person, um, and they've done their diligence. Um, risks that have come up um, include, um, you, every so often you'll, you'll have an issue with, um, well, it's really in the broad category of, of amounts owed to third parties after closing. Um, so occasionally you'll have a business assume a, a retirement plan, like a 401k plan. Um, I had an issue that I saw where there was an, an underfunding of the 401k plan that, that had to get addressed. Um, occasionally on, on some businesses, you'll see underpayment of, of sales and use tax. That, that doesn't come up very much. And um, but when it does, the, the government wants to make sure it gets its money. So even if you set it up as an asset sale, um, unpaid taxes can attach to a buyer. And no, another area where you can potentially have unpaid taxes, and this has been an issue of, of more significant enforcement recently, at least in Colorado, is the distinction between independent contractors and employees mm -hmm. that many businesses over the past 10 or so years have used a lot of independent contractors in contexts where the state believes that they actually are employees. And when the, when the business pays over money to someone as an independent contractor and doesn't withhold um, the social security and, and other key and, and other key employment tax withholdings, um, you know, the obligation is actually on the employer to pay that over to the state. So you could have that, you could have an issue with, with misclassified employees come up that could be a uh, you know, significant liability after closing. Um, and so, there's some structuring items you can do to protect yourself against this type of thing. 
Um, one of them is as a buyer, um, making sure that you have some money in your control that's owed to the seller after closing. Um, and most, most often in the main street and, um, business transaction space where there's SBA lending, there's going to be a note where the seller carries back a percentage of the purchase price. Um, and you know, that's, that's a often required for a loan, but B, if, if a buyer owes a seller money, and then it turns out the seller owes that money, owes some money back to the buyer. Um, we often structure what's called a right of set off, where um, if there is a legitimate liability that the buyer has incurred, that's, that's the seller's responsibility, that the buyer can just not pay that amount over under the note. Um, you know, occasionally with longer term notes, there's cash flow crunch issues with that, but that's a, a really good solution. Um, mm-hmm. Another one that you'll often see on, on on bigger deals and you start getting into the lower middle market would be um, a holdback or an escrow. Um, but you really only see those on on deals that you're starting to get over five million or so, just because with, with the structure, it just it, 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 it typically doesn't work that way. Um, and a lot of sellers really prefer to not have a holdback. Right, the seller wants to get their money up front. And really, the the, the, the promissory note serves as a similar function as a holdback, where it's an amount of money that the buyer owes to the seller under the purchase price that's not being paid right away. So um, in the main street space, you're really calling that holdback. It's it's really categorized under the the promissory note. Right. And I, I think that's like, we talk a lot about is like, why would you use a seller note as a buyer if you don't need the money? And and I talk a lot about is like, it's not usually about needing the financing for the transaction. It's giving you some sort of control post transaction if something were to happen with the business. And I think set offs are a great way to solve for some of these risks that could come up in unpaid liabilities. I mean, you can also structure some of them to protect and risks if uh, there's a big client concentration issue and that client leaves, um, you can do you can do set off. Uh, set offs, but you can also do adjustable seller notes too, um, where it can be tied to the performance of the business after the fact. So seller notes give you a lot of flexibility, and your attorneys can really help. Um, your attorneys and your brokers can help structure structure and memorialize that deal for you. So great points to bring up, um, and I agree with you. There's so there there really is so few deals in the main street space that, that there are issues that come out. I think, um, you know, the news talks a lot about, about these larger mega M and a deals and, and those deals always have issues after closing. Right. But on the main street and small business deals, we rarely see, um, issues, but kind of diving into that, we rarely see issues because people are usually well represented. Um, and this isn't self-serving for us or Jonathan, you at all. But one thing we talk about on this podcast a lot is that if there's any advisor you need in a deal, it has to be an attorney. Um, but just like all advisors, attorneys are not created equal. And we've already talked a little bit about your office does over a hundred deals a year. Um, we work with you guys very closely. The breadth of your experience in transactional law is amazing. But if someone's looking to hire an attorney or an advisor for their buy side deal, like how would they select the best attorney for them for their deal? And there's a few things that you should look for in your, in your attorney as a buyer. Uh, The first I believe is, is subject matter expertise. When you're buying a business, you want to work with an attorney who knows how to buy and sell businesses. And it, because it, it, it makes it, it a makes the process significantly more efficient that they've done this before, um, but there's also a lot of a lot of issues of, around making sure that well when a, when a when a buyer comes to us, we have the expectation that they want to buy the business and that they want to do the deal, um, and so and we've done so many deals that we you know know how to get to closing in a way that protects the buyer 
and is reasonably and, and is reasonably efficient. So, um, so you know, having done a lot of deals, you know how to you you know what appropriate terms are, where to start, where to push, um, and it just really helps the deal get done. Um, you know, we've some of the biggest issues that we have is when we're on a transaction and someone else in the transaction is using an attorney who maybe specializes in litigation or in family law or estate planning. Um, and these are often smart people who are great attorneys, but they just don't have the reps in this space to um, start with documents that make sense or to revise documents in a way that's appropriate. Um, and there's also a big part of this is that they're, 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 our market terms for these transactions. And maybe on occasion you'll have a deal that should be outside of market terms for whatever reason, but there's really some guardrails on um, what your documents should look like, what you should be asking for, what protections are reasonable, um, you know, what, what a seller should be make, what, what representations and warranties a seller should be making. Um, and, and an attorney with subject matter expertise who does a lot of these deals knows a good starting point, knows a fair ending point and knows how to get there. Um, and if you, if there's an attorney in a deal who doesn't know that stuff, um, you know, I've on occasion had to spend hours, which, um, can really add up for a buyer educating the other attorney on, um, what appropriate terms are, or, or how these matters are handled, or, or even worse, you can get an attorney who enables a party to take an extreme position, um, that you know, is not appropriate for that transaction that really forces the, the the buyer to to reconsider the deal because the risk allocation is just so unreasonable for them. Um, that does have it happens very rarely, but um, I, I've seen that with with some attorneys who really don't have experience in this space. Um, another issue is style alignment. That um, you know, there's d different attorneys and different business parties just have different styles about how they approach a transaction. Um, and there's some people who are soft-spoken. There's some people who are loud. Um, there's some people who um, really want to start with aggressive terms because they just want to protect their client as much as they possibly can. There's others who are focused on getting a deal done and are much more willing to just start with reasonable terms or get to reasonable terms right away. And I think it's important for a buyer to understand you know, what they're looking for. Are, are you the type of person who really, you know, who really um, you know, just wants to get a deal done as efficiently as possible, or are you the type of person who really wants to make sure that you're getting the best terms for yourself? Um, and are, are, do you want to push really hard and you know, potentially alienate the other party in order to improve your terms in a way that you know, is best for you? Or um, are you willing to compromise and, and how do you want to do that and when? And so a lot of attorneys have different styles on this. And I found a lot of, a lot of business buyers have different styles on this too. And, you know, certainly attorneys are flexible and it's their job to advocate for their client. But um, I think it's important to think about how you want to approach a transaction and how you approach negotiations and finding an attorney who um, aligns with that. And then the last big piece is experience in the market segment. Um, you know, there's there's M and A attorneys who work on um, who generally work on on deals that are below a million dollars. There's attorneys who work on deals that are in the seven figures. There's attorneys who work on much bigger deals. And you know, experience on hundred million dollar deals is is certainly helpful. But it, but an attorney who works on a hundred million dollar deal. Um, is probably going to bring in more robust forms and um, a, and a different approach um, on a two to a million dollar deal, and you might end up paying for that expertise and that and that more um, robust scope of representation. And 
Um, part of it is on bigger deals that there's just so much more money at stake that it, it can be worth a bunch of money to dig down on into every last single issue. And a lot of attorneys who do work in on, on much bigger deals, that's just how they are structured and that's how their law firms are. Um, whereas if it's a, you know, if it's a deal that doesn't quite have as much money at stake, you obviously want to be protected by your attorney and have good documents, but, um, it's all the, the people who work on smaller deals know to focus on key issues and that, um, running down every last piece of due diligence, um, is maybe not the best use of significant attorney time. So, um, know the size of your deal and find someone who has experience on that size, size of a deal and, and a law firm that has experience on that size of a deal. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, the expertise one, we always compare attorneys um, in these deals to like surgeons, right? You, you don't want your cardiologist to be replacing your hip. And it's the same thing as like family law and transactional law, very different segments of, of the industry. And, and you know, likewise on the, the size too, because I, I think sometimes people are surprisingly shocked um, how I wouldn't say that legal advice in these size deals are is inexpensive, but it's not as expensive as you would think, um, because there are firms like yours that specialize in the main street to lower end of the lower middle market, where you're not paying, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on attorneys, right? Because there's a different uh, legal set and there's different um, types of uh, types of representation for a hundred million dollar deal versus a million dollar deal. So I think all great points, Jonathan, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. You provide so much value um, to our office and our network. If someone wants to get in touch with you for further questions or to work on a deal together in Colorado, how would they reach you? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm best. I can be reached either by, by phone or by email. Um, our main office phone number is 303-850-7080. Um, and I'm always available by email as well. It's Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at isbikilaw.com. And the latter part is spelled I, Z is in zebra, B is in boy, I-K-Y-L-A-W.com. Great. And we'll drop that information to the show notes as well. But Jonathan, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends on social media. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions, would like to appear, or have suggestions for topics for the show, get in contact with us through our website, thedealboardpodcast.com. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.